Uh, so we're in a series, the second week of this series now called Hope Breaks Through. We're looking at, throughout Advent, this big idea of hope, um, which I defined last week. We're, we're using the, this passage from Romans that uh, we read just a moment ago, Romans chapter 8, uh, and this idea that, that hope, to hope is to connect to your believed-in future, to, uh, to our promised future. So there's a, an articulation of hoping in things we haven't yet seen, but, but kind of leaning toward that. So the future we've caught a glimpse of, if you put it in the framework of uh, Advent and Christmas, we've caught a glimpse of it in Christ, and yet uh, we haven't yet fully seen that lived out today. So the Son of God lived, died, rose from the dead, and yet we still see death all around us. And so there's still a victory promised for us, and that's what it means to live in a time of Advent, of waiting and hoping for the future, to, uh, God's ultimate future. And so last, last week we looked at this idea of hope from a 30,000-foot view. If you weren't here, I invite you. We have sermons online. You can go back and listen to it. Today we're going to really get into the uh, kind of on the ground level through the lens of our weakness, uh, as we heard, read this morning from Romans chapter 8. So let's take a moment to pause, pray together, and then we'll begin. Okay, let's pray. God, thanks for an opportunity that we have now in this space to open ourselves to your word. Uh, would you be our teacher this morning, God? Would your spirit guide us and guide our hearts and not only bring conviction to areas that where we just need your light to, to penetrate, but also encouragement. A lot of us come in, God, discouraged, tired. Um, during this time of Advent, we feel loss, we feel pain. Um, and so would you bring comfort to those places of loss and pain? Just as Isaiah said, comfort, oh, comfort us, God. Bring comfort to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, when I was a young swimmer, I grew up swimming from the time I can remember. Uh, I was, like when I was an age group swimmer, eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, and then up actually through high school. And I swam all the way through college at the University of Puget Sound. We did this, uh, this set, this pretty typical set, one time, about one time a week. Um, it was about... 10 or 15 100s, sometimes 20. And uh, we do that once a week. We do that set, that kind of a set every day, but this particular set once a week, um, kind of this interval thing where the interval kept getting faster throughout the set. So this, the 100 repeat would start at like a minute 30. And then we'd work our way down. So the next one was 125, then 120, then 115, then 110. Just keep going down, down, down like that until you get to this impossibly fast interval by the, the 20th or the 19th or whatever, 55 seconds, 50 seconds, 45 seconds, which for anybody who's ever swum, it's virtually impossible to, to make that interval. It's really hard to <clears throat> accomplish that. And, so it's, and it's definitely hard to repeat. Like if you're at 55 seconds and then you go to 50, it's hard to like repeat that. And, and uh, so we get less rest between the hundreds as the set progressed. And if you're an athlete, you know that's hard because presumably you're, you're, you're getting more and more tired and slower and slower and, sense, and not faster and stronger, right, if you've done any sort of sport. But also, here's the, here's the, here's the key. Uh, by the end of the set, everyone from the fastest person on the team, which I wasn't, but the fastest to the slowest, is up near their anaerobic threshold, if you know what that is. And so there's this lactic acid just kind of pouring into our bodies and our veins, and we're just feeling sick, like vomit, sick to your stomach. If you ever, like somebody, I was talking to somebody this morning who did a spin class, like you're, you've been into one of those, right? And it's like, you want to sick, you're just sick. And so fastest to slowest person is missing that interval because there's not, your body is just in shock and it's saying, no, until like the last couple hundreds is just pure failure, pure agony. Everybody's, everybody in the pool is just suffering. 
And what I didn't know at the time, but found out much later in life, I mean, I hated my coaches growing up, but I found out this much later in life is our coaches were introducing us to this concept called AMRAP. Anybody know what AMRAP is? If you do CrossFit, you know. As many reps as possible. AMRAP. It's an acronym for that. In other circles, it's called the, the concept of concentric failure, okay? So you just work your failure outward until everybody's failing. Uh, and so the way this works, whether it's swimming, running, CrossFit, a spin class, running stairs at Green Lake, wherever you go, you're subjecting your body to a sense of failure. And, and so failure is where your arms, your legs, whatever part of your body you're working out just gives out completely. You can't complete that last rep. Now think about it. If you lift weights, you can't, it's like when you're lifting the bench press and you, you're trying that last rep, you can't get it back up onto the bar and you're, just, you're hoping that spotter gets it because it's going to crush your, your chest, right? Or the last pull-up, you, you can't get it out. You can't pull up. Or the last split on that last interval. Your legs are burning. You just feel like you're going to collapse. You actually do collapse. You feel like awful. And so here's the key. It's not just the last rep that you think you can do. Like you get to this end of a workout I'm pretty tired. I'm going to call it in right now. It's actually where, it's not where your form starts to fail. It's actually the point where you, you, you do fail. So you, you go past the point of failure and, and you actually experience failure. Here, and here's another key to, uh, if you're curious about doing this. Research suggests that uh, training to failure, this AMRAP thing, which by the way is an occasional thing, once a week. So for all you who are thinking of taking this on, like, once a week at the most. Don't do this every day. But, you know, once in a while. Uh, it actually, if you do this on a regular basis, once a week, once every couple weeks, it actually helps athletes break through to new training plateaus. Okay? And here's why this works. The research has found that when we push ourselves to the edge, or like past the edge, our bodies begin secreting muscle-building, fat-fighting hormones that then recruit, like, more... Uh, it's cool. He's good. Uh, more like muscle fibers, like you, your muscles start to grow. And if you work out the right way, when you start to feel really exhausted, your muscles start to, they break down, then they grow. Does this make sense? So it works because as the science shows, it creates this environment where muscles are more receptive to growth. Making sense to you all? Now, you're asking this question, so what? What's that? Have? That's a great little workout lesson. What's that have to do with the life of faith? Well, I'm glad you asked because it has everything to do with the life of faith. So listen to what Martin Luther, he's, this is the reformer, not Martin Luther King Jr., but listen to what he said in this exposition, this really daring exposition on Romans chapter 8, once, where he pondered why followers of Christ, if you read that passage, often experience the opposite of what we pray for. We don't get what we pray for is what he's talking about. Like we experience weakness, we experience failure, AMRAP, need, even though Christ has given us victory. Like he's victor over death and yet we die. Here's what Martin Luther says in that exposition on Romans 8. God contravenes all our conceptions because it is God's nature to first destroy and bring to nothing whatever is in us, our own wisdom, our own resources, our own strength, before he can give us his own, his wisdom, his resources, his strength. So there's, like a cla there's a lot of examples of this in the Bible. There's a really classic example in the life of Gideon. Remember Gideon, one of the judges? In, in Judges chapter 7, he has this army, and you probably know this story from like a flannel graph in Sunday school. He's the general of the army, and his mission is to go in and defeat the Midianite and the Amalekite armies, who, by the way, uh, they're, they're encamped across this river, and they're so vast, Judges 7 tells us they're like locusts covering a valley. 
Their camels are like sands covering a seashore. Too great to number. Now, if that's not bad enough, here's what God does to Gideon. Here's the Amrap part. He says that his army is too big for this mission. So he says to Gideon, so great is the number of your people, <laughs> by the way, their number's greater, so great is the number of your people that if I give the Midianites into your hands, they'll be uplifted with pride and they'll say, I've been my own savior. That's Judges 7 verse 2. So God then begins to push Gideon to the edge, a little AMRAP workout, you might say. He says, you have 32,000 men, let me just take that down to 10,000. Oh, oh 10,000? Let's take that down to five. Five, two, two becomes one until Judges 7, 9, Gideon has 300 men left, just 300. And then the Lord says to Gideon in Judges 7, 9, now, get up, go against their army, and I'll give them into your hands. 300 against, like, a vast valley of locusts and sand. Like, it's like, if that's not training to failure, I don't know. It's like the impossible last set. Gideon's never going to accomplish that, right? And so the key distinction here, though, between the idea of training to failure, if you're going to do this, and the life of faith is this, that God doesn't generally does not cause weakness, okay? Uh, I mean, there are examples. Gideon's one. God kind of leads him into that. Uh, Paul at one point says that God gave him a thorn in his flesh. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We know God does things like this. Really interesting things that we'd probably have to have more time to really unpack and reflect on. But generally, God doesn't cause weakness or suffering or failure, okay? Uh, God's not like some sadistic personal trainer that's saying, lock your core, like one more set. You can do this. I know you can't, but you can. You know, God's not like that. What we find, though, is that throughout the gospel, God uses weakness in order to create receptivity. He uses it. Doesn't cause it, uses it. So he uses the weakness of Gideon. He's the smallest among all his brothers in order to bring receptivity to growth or victory in his case. So what does Paul say in, in, his, letter, for, in his letter to the church in Corinth? This is actually talking about his thorn. Listen to what he says. Uh, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, ah, yes, I get it now. I'm going to boast in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me and in me. That's why... He says, for, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness because it's Christ's power, not my power. I'm going to delight in, my in, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties because when, uh, when I'm weak, I'm strong. He's strong. Does that make sense? So the message of the gospel is God always uses the weak, always uses the weakness in our lives in order that like our muscles and our cardiovascular systems, our lives would have a greater receptivity to his grace. That's the point of it. And, and that receptivity is a prerequisite to our ability to acknowledge Christ as Lord. We won't be able to follow Jesus until we know our need. You're not in touch with Jesus until you're in touch with your own weakness. You probably haven't begun to follow Christ unless you've failed, <laughs> unless you've experienced some sort of failure. And so, therefore, this morning, I want to explore that idea with you a little bit, this idea of weakness in the midst of that, the great surprise of Advent which is that God helps us in the midst of our weakness. This is Romans chapter 8. So if you looked at that bulletin this morning that you got, there was like five bullets. That was a misprint. So we're going to look at two things, our weakness, God's help. And under God's help, one, maybe two things. But we're going to keep it pretty simple. What is our weakness? How does God help? Okay? Real simple. So let's start with our weakness. Romans eight twenty six. Here's what Paul says. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what we ought to pray for, okay? So it's true, if you've ever prayed, like we don't know how to pray, and, and not just we don't know what words to use, like you might feel like 
if I ever invited one of you to come up here and pray, you'd be like, I don't, uh, I'm not going to do that. We don't know what words to use, but here's the deal. I think what Paul's saying is we don't know with what direction or focus to pray. We don't know how, we don't know what, what content. Think about this. If you've ever said this, I don't know what God's doing right now. Like, I'm confused. Why is this happening in my life? I've, I've, you know, I've been going to church. I've been having my quiet time. How could God allow this to happen to me? Or how can I know God's will in this relationship? Really? I mean, in this situation, in this circumstance, I, the secret will of God, right? Or I wish I knew God's plan for my life. Have you ever said something, anyone said something like that? A few of us have. So the reality is that most of us, if you're like me, like me think that Christianity is you come to church, you pray, you, do, you sing some songs, read some scripture, especially when things are tough, and it's sort of like sending those things out as wishes in a bottle, <laughs> you know, like sticking a note in a bottle and then throwing it in the ocean. So you try to be good, but you're never totally sure if you're good enough. You know, you try to pray, you're not sure if you're asking the right things. You're not sure if you're asking is right. You try to talk to God, you're not even sure if God's listening. It's like you're... You, you threw the bottle on the ocean, you're out there on the ocean, you're looking at the mountains, you're going, I think there's a God. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I think, I don't know. And you feel like you're, we just don't know if God is real, right? And so we're a very, as Paul's saying, I think we're very often ignorant of what's happening beyond uh, the veil, so to speak. And the key here is, is that while we're sometimes aware of our ignorance, like you know, I don't know, I, there's, another, there's another layer to reality and I just don't see it. Like the disciples in Luke, Luke 11 who say, Lord, teach us to pray. They know if they ask the Lord of heaven and earth to teach them, they know there's another layer they need to break through and they just need to know better. Sometimes we know that. We're all, more often than not, though, just blind to our ignorance. Like the sons of Zebedee come to Jesus and they say, hey, they demand positions of influence and power before Jesus dies. They think, yeah, we want to be in your left and right. And what does Jesus say to them in, in Matthew 20? You don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking. You, you, if you really sit by me, you know who you're going to be? A couple of thieves on crosses next to me. You have no idea. You're so blind. Uh, Jesus' brother actually puts it a little less subtly in James 4. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Like, wow, thanks a lot. I'm, I'll take Jesus, older brother, because a little less <laughs> blunt. So all this is to say that the Spirit prays for us, frankly, because we're ignorant. We, are, we, have no, we ask wrongly. Our knowledge is just incomplete. And a little sidebar here. Romans 8 tells us, if you read the whole chapter, that though our knowledge is incomplete, though we ask wrongly, God's, God's knowledge is not. Um, the Spirit of God prays according to the knowledge of God. Uh, and with groanings too deep for words, the Spirit pleads on our behalf in longings that are verbally inexpressible. I talked a lot about that last week. So this is God's silent and powerfully, powerful like a f- prayer ministry for us, intercessory prayer ministry, which I'll talk about at the end here today. But just so you know, even though your knowledge might feel incomplete, God's is not. Okay? God prays on your behalf. So there's this, this specific application for us in the life of prayer. And yet this broader application for us when you talk about our life of faith and especially as you talk about weakness. Uh, And here's what I mean by that. Remember when the disciples come to Jesus, like I said, and they say, hey, teach us how to pray? Remember what Jesus said to them, what he taught them? We all know this. (laughs) Even though we don't know the specific instance, we know this. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? We know that. And so here's the broader application. In our ignorance is an invitation to just honest confession. Thy will be done is a confession, actually, which is this. Not my will. Not my plans. Not my strength. Not my agenda. Not my life. It's not mine. None of this is mine. This church isn't mine. (laughs) It's not even yours. Uh, And so... uh, this confession in the Lord's Prayer is not mine, not mine. And that's a huge step to take. Henry Nouwen, uh, I, I use him a lot. I love him. He was one of the first spiritual writers I, I just ever read, and I, I've always come back to him. He describes this not mine mentality as, as a maturing into, an, listen to this, an articulate not knowing. An articulate not knowing. Listen to what he says in one of his books. The more ma- this is so countercultural. The more mature we become, the more we will be able to give up our inclination to grasp, catch, and comprehend the fullness of life. And, and the more we'll be able to re- be ready to let Christ's life enter into us and emanate from us. Let me read that again because there's a lot of words. The more mature we become, the more we'll be able to, to give up the inclination to grasp, catch, and comprehend the fullness of life. And the more we'll be ready to let Christ's life enter into us. That's maturity. Maturity. And I just love that. Uh, there was this time, I think it was a couple years ago. I don't remember, a year ago, I got shingles. Some of you know this. And uh, they have this new way you can, you can talk to your doctor on the phone. So I, I had this TMI. But, I, you know, you get shingles, and it's around your chest and stuff, and these sores. I was like, what is this? So I called the doctor. And I don't want to, I don't hate, I hate going to the doctor. Like, it's not my favorite. I don't even have a doctor. So I go to the emergency room, you know. But um, so I call this doctor, and, I, and, I, and the doctor's asking me, tell me about your symptoms a little bit. And uh, within, like, within a minute of being on the phone, the doctor said, hey, I need to see you this afternoon. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> like, I'm thinking the worst, you know. I'm very worried. I have a, uh, so I make an appointment for later that afternoon. Um, and I, and I, I spent less than five minutes on the phone with the doctor. I'm going to see him that afternoon. I'm just, I'm so anxious. So when I arrived, this doctor asked me, asked me like 20 questions, like question after question, like at least 20. How long have you had these symptoms? Um, what's your diet like? How, what are you eating like? Your exercise habits? Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do drugs? What's your family history? Diabetes, cancer, depression? How much do you work a week? I mean, just going into my life, I'm like, I thought I was going to see like a like another counselor, you know, like it just felt like a counseling session, question after question. And then you know what the doctor said to me? Yeah, shingles. I was like, when did you know that? Like, at what point? And the doctor said, oh, when we were on the phone. And I said, <laughs> like, why did you have me come in and waste all this time? He's like, I wanted to be sure. I wanted to be sure. And, I, and though initially I was kind of annoyed at this doctor, I, after that I was like, yeah, I want to keep you as a doctor. I don't want a doctor who's kind of, eh, maybe. <laughs> I want a doctor who's sure. And, and the Nowen goes on in this book he writes. He says, how difficult is that for us? Uh, whose attitude is toward mastering, controlling our world and our environment. It's so hard to let go. We want people who are sure of what they know, right? We want to be sure of what we know. I mean, who wants to say to their kids when they come to you with a difficult life choice, I don't know. I'm not, sh- I'm not, I'm not sure. Hope you figure it out. No parent wants to say that to their kids, right? Uh, or a su- when a supervisor comes to you, you know, your boss comes to you and asks you about a problem that they're facing, and you say, wow, I don't know, I wish I had the solution. No, you're going to fake it because you want to get the promotion, you want to get the raise. 
Or the doctor says, I don't know, I, I, I thought it was something else, but I'm not sure. I, here's some Advil, you know, like you're, you know. Or you come to God with a perplexing situation and it's just silence. And then you go to your Christian friends and you say, I can't hear anything from God. And they're like, well, that's interesting. Good luck. <laughs> you know, like none of us, you, we all try and fill in the blanks, don't we? And here's the deal. Romans is saying that's the life of faith, to live in the blanks, to live without knowing. The life of faith is not to be the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul, as William and Ernest Henley would have us be, but to stand in this posture with God of obedience, dependence, surrender, uh, articulate not knowing, to surrender to this relationship to the master who's Christ, who knows, to stand in dependence upon him, to receive, as Romans tells us, his help, not be our own help, to receive his help, which leads to the second half. So our weakness is we just don't know. And we're invited to receive the help of God's Spirit. Romans 8.26, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. We're weak. All of us, if you're honest, are just filled with doubts right now about something. Your vision for life is kind of clouded. You can't see through to it, the end of it. And you're invited by God in this chapter of Romans into this articulate, mature posture of not knowing. Like, I don't know, God. And the beauty of this is when we do, when we, when we say, God, I don't know what the next step looks like. Here's what God says, I'm here. I'm help. The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. That's the promise, okay? So let's look at that real quick. And by the way, a little sidebar. It's interesting how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. If you go to John chapter 14, for example, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. He's going to die. He's telling his disciples this. I'm going to ask the Father... And the Father's going to give you another advocate to help you. And you've probably heard me talk about this before, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And that word, or those words, another advocate to help, is one single powerful Greek word, parakaleo. Jesus' word for the Spirit that he chose, parakaleo, it's, if you're a counselor in the room, this is your day, counselor. I'm going to give you a counselor. And you know, if you've ever been to a counselor, they stand by you, they just sit with you, they listen to you, they don't they might pepper you with questions, but they're not going to fill your mind with answers. They're going to let the good counselors, Christian counselors, they let the Spirit do the work, help you, lift you up. And that's the same vision that why we chose Isaiah 40 this morning, that Isaiah caught of God. Comfort, O oh comfort, your people, O oh God. The Spirit is the comforter, brings comfort to our life, speaking tenderly about God's uh, promised deliverance for us. It's promised. It's out there. It's hope. It's not here yet but it's God's intention that we experience it in, in measures throughout our lives. So the Spirit of God's our help. So what is the help? Let's see, we're going to look at just one and a quarter of these, okay, real quick. I want to spend the bulk on this first one because it's, as I studied it this week, it's like, man, it's just so exciting to me. So the first one is the Spirit testifies that we're children of God. And I just love to camp here. So uh, if you have Romans, I'm going to read from... J.B. Phillips here, which is one of my favorite translations, and I often use it. Um, hard to find in print, but if you're lucky, you have a couple or three like I do. <laughs> so uh, Romans 8, chapter f uh, verse 14, I'm just going to read these three verses, 14 to 17. Uh, this is where it kind of talks about this idea, the Spirit testifying we're children of God. So all who follow the leading of God's Spirit are, are God's own sons and daughters. We're not meant to relapse into this old slavish attitude of fear. You've been adopted into the very family circle of God, 
And you can say with a full heart, with full confidence, Abba, Father. The Spirit endorses our inward conviction that we are really the children of God. Think what that means. (laughs) If we are God's children, we share His treasures. And all that Christ claims as His will belong to all of us as well. Think about that. All that Christ claims as His will, wholeness, healing, uh, all of that, restoration, renewal, reconciliation, belongs to us as well. We, if we share in His sufferings, we will certainly share in His glory. So Paul's talking about adoption there. We're, it testifies by the Spirit that we're children of God. It brings the Spirit of sonship, the Spirit does. Daughterhood. And what's more, we're going to get into this, the Spirit, it convinces, it convinces or testifies that uh, your, your, testifies your heart of the gospel. So here's the key. The gospel is not, listen to this, I earn my way into heaven. I, I good my way to God uh, through active church attendance, scripture memorization, service to the poor, you fill in the blank. Those are all good, all good, all important, but not the essence of the gospel. You need to know this. The essence of the gospel, Paul says, is that you and I are adopted. You and I are adopted sons and daughters. We belong to the family of God. I re- and here's the other essence of it. I received that. Did you hear that? We receive our adoption. We don't adopt ourselves. God adopt, we receive adoption. We're adopted freely. God chooses that. We're brought into a relationship with God by pure grace. Uh, I'm an heir to God's kingdom. I, I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I, I, all that is Christ is mine, right? And, and this is so important for us to understand. Like we, we think, oh, I learned that in Sunday school. I got that locked and loaded. Do you? Like, think about this for a minute. Do you know why this is so important? I realized this uh, powerfully this week in a men's group I'm part of. We're reading in Luke chapter 9, and it's this longer passage, so I'm not going to read it all, but you can go there sometime. And to make this long story short, it involves all these amazing, miraculous events in Jesus' life. He feeds the 5,000 in this chapter. He's transfigured in this chapter. He heals a man from demon possession in this chapter. I mean, Jesus is doing it all. He's just laying it out. Every Hollywood movie just pales in comparison. Miracle after miracle, which leads to this amazing moment in Luke 9, uh, 43, where he says, where it says that everyone was marveling at Jesus at this point. And then he, so then he turns to his disciples because everybody's marveling. And he says to them, he says to them this, listen carefully for what I'm about to tell you. So everybody's marveling and he, he hones in on the, just the 12. Listen carefully. And then he reveals what's going to happen to him. Talks about his death how he's going to be handed over to the authorities, going to have to suffer, be crucified. And then this amazing thing in, in Luke 9, 45, they didn't understand. Like, everyone's marveling. He's talking about death. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it says in Luke 9, 45, it's, it was because it was hidden from them. They didn't grasp it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus because they didn't understand. So here's the crux. And then in 9, 47, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, or you might say knowing their confusion, knowing their unknowing, knowing their ignorance, knowing their weakness, he says this. They're, utter, they're utterly lost, uncertain. He doesn't preach a sermon to them. He doesn't say, hey guys, let's do a little Bible study now. Open to Matthew chapter 5. Remember the Beatitudes. What's the first Beatitude? Come on. Have you been paying attention? Like, I've been with you all this time. Are you this dense? Instead, here's what it says. Knowing their thoughts, he brought a child to his side. <laughs> like, why did Jesus do that? You know, he had this really good opportunity to correct their thinking, to, to clear up their thinking. And he says, 
I'm going to grab a child and just have this child stand by me. And that's going to explain it all. Why does Jesus do that? Is it like to prove that they're not, they're just filled with pride and this child's not? Is it to prove some sort of sermon illustration that we'll get someday? No. I, I don't think that's why Jesus does it. Here's why I think Jesus does it. I thought about this a lot this week. When the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus in his baptism, if you back up to that story, he hears this, this voice. And do you remember what the voice says? It's God the Father. This is my son. In, in whom I'm delighted. You're my son. You're my child. I delight in you. <laughs> if the Son of God, been with God for all of eternity, needs to hear that, do you think you might need to hear it a few times in your life? Uh, and you say, well, that's Jesus, though. I mean, like, yeah, he's the Son of God. Of course he is. Well, in Romans 8, it says, we're, the Spirit comes into our hearts and bears witness with our spirits that we are children. In, in Galatians 4, it says, the Spirit comes into our hearts crying, Abba! Same thing. Same exact thing. There, there's this refrain in the gospel that you and I are adopted. We are children. We are sons and daughters. The job of the Spirit is always to come in and reveal to you the nature of God's love for you specifically and, and His delight in you specifically and how He made you specifically and the fact that you are a son. You are a daughter. You're a child. He's a good, as we sing, He's a good, good Father. We're loved by Him. It's who we are. <laughs> it's not what we do. It's who we are. We are children, sons and daughters. And when we're, especially when we're confused or lost or clueless about life, our suffering is clouding. Our experiences are clouding everything, our next steps. Especially then, God comes in and says, you're adopted. I love you. You're beloved. You're mine. And, and this is important for us to grasp because, um, well, like last week, I shared from this Advent devotional. Guess who it's by? Henry Nouwen. <laughs> I mean, it's good, right? So he, I, I shared from this Advent devotional last week, and it was like the day of first week of Advent. Interestingly, I'm with this men's group on Tuesday. We're reading from Luke 9, and I had the Advent devotional tucked in my Bible. I said, guys, guess what the title for this week's, this today's Advent devotion is? Reading about Jesus bringing a child to his side. Question, have we lost our identity as children of God? <laughs> I was like, boom, mic drop, Henry, now, and thank you. And this is what he says. How much I want to say to you, listen to this, him talking to you, as Jesus said, become like children. Many of us have become so serious, so intense, so filled with preoccupations about the future of the world and the church, so burdened by our own loneliness and our isolation and our experience of suffering. We're veiled by sadness, which is preventing us from exuding the peace and the joy as, of God's children. And then he says this, you know as well as, as I do that when our words are full of warnings, if you've been a parent, our eyes are full of fears if you're anyone right now. Our bodies are full of unfulfilled needs if you're experiencing suffering and loss. Uh, we cannot expect to ever create around us a community that shines as light in the darkness unless we've received our identity as children of God. It begins there. It ends there. That's, the, that's it. <laughs> we are beloved. Uh, we've lost our identity as children of God. So the Spirit is in our lives to remind us of this. But here's the next thing. It's also there to testify to it. In verse 16 of Romans 8, the Spirit testifies to our spirit. So I read that a little bit this week, and I was kind of puzzled because it, it sounds like Paul's just kind of repeating himself until you really kind of unpack the Greek there. Uh, 
See, if you look carefully at it, it says the Spirit reminds our spirits that we're children of God. It comes alongside like a good counselor. It says, hey, you're a child. And then in verse 16, it gives an added testimony. It says it again. Now, what's that about? Uh, it, it means, I think, as C.S. Lewis once said, there's a further up and a further in. You know, there's a deeper in, there's a deeper experience of our relationship with God, our understanding of God, our self-understanding that we need to, the Spirit to bring us into. It means that the thing that you and I need more than anything else is not just intellectual knowledge that we're sons and daughters, but we need to have that sense in our hearts, an experiential knowledge of that reality. We need to have a sense in our hearts that the objective truth is that we're adopted. We need, they need to be subjectively real. That's the, and that's the job of the Spirit. You can do a Bible study on all those verses, and then the Spirit, you have to release that to the Spirit to bring you in to this kind of holy of holies of your adoption, uh, to testify to your heart that you are adopted. So the, the, the first and primary help of the Spirit in our lives is to help us face our doubt, face our confusion, face our suffering all the weakness I've been talking about. It's to go from verse 15 of Romans 8 to 16, to take you deeper up. <laughs> I, think, I think I just broke, Andrew, wherever you are. <laughs> we'll fix it later. There's nothing else back there, just electronics. <laughs> I hope it works. Okay, back to here. Where was I? So the thing we most need is this gift of confidence, the spirit to testify to our spirit that we're adopted, uh, the assurance that we're in Christ, the gift of kind of experiencing God's delight, that's His first and greatest work in your life, to speak to your heart. And, and often, I talked about this last week, but often through nothing more than groanings, uh, like deep, imperceptible nudges, hints of God's presence that say, you're delighted in, you're beloved, you're chosen, you're my child. And if you don't, if you ha- if you don't know any of that yet, like if you're kind of like here, but not here yet, this is where I just want to say stop. Let's stop here. Like, and this is the time. Advent is the time. And this is why it's the time. We have a picture of God's love for us in this child who's Christ. I think God's invitation is just to be still and know. I mean, how many of you have held a child? <laughs> it's, it's really hard. I mean, sometimes the children can be really hard to hold. But there's always those moments. And... God is saying in the season of Advent, <laughs> get close enough to me to allow Christ to be a mirror to you, to, to say you're delighted and you're chosen, you are beloved, I, I, I'm so, I, I love you so much. That's what you're cared for. And because you're cared for, that next step is taken care of. And so is the next one. Don't worry, I'm with you. That's the story of Advent, further up, further in, Okay. So that's the first and most important thing. We're going to close with this, the second thing here, which is the Spirit interceding. It's kind of connected. Um, and then the last stuff, just leave it, leave it for another time, okay? So the first thing the Spirit does is con- like convinces us, convicts us that we're sons and daughters. We're adopted. The second thing the Spirit does is it intercedes for us according to the will of God, okay? And uh, this idea of intercession, it's so confusing. Like, here's the Greek word. Hoop er and tunga or kano. I mean, I can't even, it's like I had to break it up into little, it sounds like a hard word to me. It's a hard word. <laughs> so what does it mean to intercede, right? Literally, it just means to, 
to advocate for somebody else on their behalf, like with a specific emphasis on the for. You're for someone. Like you're fully for them. You, you believe in them so much, even when they can't believe in themselves. You're on behalf of them. Um, this is why trial lawyers, lawyers especially uh, public defenders, are so amazing to me because they know they're fighting a losing cause a lot of the times. And yet they go in the courtroom, I'm defending for this person, even though I think they're guilty, but I'm going I'm to fight tooth and nail for them. That's what the Spirit does for us, tooth and nail. I'm interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. So what does that look like? What does that mean? What, what is the Spirit doing in our place that we can't do ourselves? So I want to finish with this thought. A little quote from this prayer book that I often quote, um, it's by Philip Yancey, and he talks about this idea of intercession, and he, re- he reframed this for me a few years ago, and I, and I was reading this this week and kind of envisioning the Spirit doing this work. He's talking about what it looks like to intercede for others. Think about the Spirit doing this for you. I'll just read this, and then we'll close. I once envisioned intercession as bringing requests to God that God may not have thought of and then talking God into granting them. Now I see the intercession as an increase in my awareness. When I pray for another person, I'm praying for God to open my eyes so I can see that person as God sees and then enter into the stream of, of God's love that God is already directing toward them. And then he goes on to say that something happens when we begin to pray this way. We bring people into God's presence. It changes our attitude toward them and ultimately affects our relationship. So I pray for that neighbor who's always trying to sneak out of praying, paying his share of the neighborhood assessments. Uh, I pray for the drug-addicted relative who I, I can't see because their, their behavior is so wounded, so destructive. Um, in short, listen to this. This is where I think the Spirit comes into play. Prayer allows me to see others as God sees them and me. As uniquely flawed, uniquely gifted bearers of God's image. Prayer allows, intercession allows us to begin to see each other through the eyes of Christ. And when you think of the Spirit interceding for you, this idea that what we desire, God desires all the more. What, what you want for your life, what you are, you've been praying for, you've been asking for, is God's desire for you. He doesn't lead you to silly things healing, wholeness, all those things. It's God's perfect intention and desire for us to experience those things. And this is what the Spirit is doing for us. It's, God doesn't delight in anything less than those things. And the Spirit is actively working on our behalf for those things. We just sometimes don't know it. And we don't see it. We're ignorant of it. And like I said earlier, that's just fine. It's okay. Because God does. God is passionately, fervently, tirelessly seeking His will for you, His will for us as His people in our place. And that's, that's the point of Advent. That's the point of Christmas. Like I just said, it's learning to see the passion and the fervency of God in the face of Christ. I mean, He was called Emmanuel, God with us, God interceding for us. God's so passionate for you that He would send His only Son. As a, as a pure gift. That's God's intercession. And then learning to experience God's longing for you and His wholeness for you as you wait for Christ to return again. Advent's all about waiting for Christ to return in this broken in-between time in history where the world is just groaning, and groaning, groaning, groaning. Our families are groaning. Our bodies are groaning. 
Our political discourse is groaning. Leadership, we need leadership. Leadership is groaning. Justice, equity, all those things. We can know right now because God has placed Emmanuel in our lives, God with us, that God hears our prayers, our groans, that he delights in us, and he's going to bring healing to our lives, deliverance and peace. And so I want to spend time as we respond in worship. We'll invite our team back. Um, Centering down on those two ideas. And I'm going to invite you to, as we sing, um, to kind of land in maybe one or two of those places. Some of you absolutely need to allow that message of your adoption to go from your head to your heart. You are, you've doubted that you belong to God's family. You've, you'd say to people here, if people only knew what I think about, what I've done, where I've been, what I've seen, they would run. You need to receive your sonship. You need to receive your daughterhood. You just receive that this morning. Others of you have been kind of fighting, beating the door down. God, if you only, God, God. Some of you need to hear that the Spirit of God is, is interceding. You, can, you don't have to beat the door down anymore because the Spirit of God is inside that room on your behalf, groaning for you before the throne of God, wanting healing, wanting wholeness, desiring it for you. And you need to rest in the confidence that the Spirit of God is doing that. Okay, So let's rest in that space. I'm going to just pray and close for us, and then we'll, we'll worship together. God, thank you for the invitation to rest uh, this morning in who we are, adopted children, um, and then who you are, a God who sees us and a God who has the capacity, the power, and the desire to save us. So God, I pray for our church this morning where we feel a disconnect in either of those two places. Uh, Would you begin, uh, now that I'm done speaking, God, would you, you begin to speak to our hearts in a real live and active way? Thank you that we have this time to respond. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.